Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So just recently, I agreed to do an inspirational talk at the middle school I went to. A really great middle school in a lot of ways, but to be perfectly clear, I did not graduate from the middle school. Did you even know that it was possible to not graduate from middle school? I didn't, but then again, I didn't. Anyway, it was good to hear that our guest, the writer Margaret Atwood, was also a late bloomer. In the third year of high school, I had a teacher called Miss Florence Medley, and when they went back to do a documentary on me some years ago, they asked Miss Florence Medley what I was like in her class. She was an English teacher. And usually somebody in that position would say, oh, I can tell immediately that brilliance shone from every pore. But she told the truth. She said she showed no particular ability in my class. And I always loved her for that because I did show no particular ability in her class. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll sit down with the comedian Matt Bronger. He and I will talk about stand-up comedy, self-reflection, and the importance of taking risks. When people ask me what, what advice you give a young person, it's just like, try stuff that you might horrifically fail at. Just try. I'm not saying cliff diving, you know, but like, <laughs> you know, stuff like... Yeah. <laughs> at least practice. Yeah, like, right, or bare-knuckle underground boxing. I'm right. saying like, you know, just live with someone you date or uh, quit the job you hate to do something else. Then later, our contributor Guy Branham sits down with one of his personal literary heroes, Margaret Atwood. The veteran novelist has a reputation as a no-nonsense interviewee, but that doesn't stop Branham from bringing some nonsense of his own. (laughs) Was this you being a little bit shady, Margaret Atwood? I'm always shady. (laughs) Shady is my middle name. Come on. Plus, I'll tell you about one of the most cheerful albums ever recorded about the apocalypse. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Matt Bronger's new special is called Big Dumb Animal. It's how he describes himself on stage. Sort of a big doofus blundering through the world. But... His doofy persona disguises a sharp social eye. Bronger grew up in Portland. He made his name in Chicago, and he's been a star in L.A.'s stand-up scene for 10 years or so now. He's also acted. He was a cast member of Mad TV and of the sitcom Up All Night, among other shows. But stand-up remains his bread and butter. Here he is on Big Dumb Animal. He talks a little bit about how he gives blood regularly and uh, the very specific questions uh, that they are forced to ask him before he does so. Okay, Matthew, you, uh, you ever had sex with a man? Never been so lucky. High five. <laughs> yes or no? No. Right? And she's like, okay, now on just yes or no. You ever had sex with a man in the UK? <laughs> Not kidding. That's the next question. Like, what? I just answered that question. Yes or no? No. Okay. You ever had sex with a man in Uganda? Like, come on! We're doing the same thing. Like, they're trying to wear you down geographically. Like, find the corner of the globe where you slipped out of your sexuality. Like, oh, you say New Zealand? Ah, you got me. You win. You got me. He took me surfing. It was amazing. 
Matt Bronger, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Thank you for coming on the show. You bet. So Portland, I imagine when you were growing up, wasn't the Portland that we know today. It was more the, like, uh, controversy over the spotted owl Portland. <laughs> well, it, it, it was just a, not a place people thought about. I, I Even when I went to college, everyone was like, oh, Bronger's from Seattle. Like, I'm not from Seattle. So I went to school in New York. And it was just, it was all the same world to them, you know? There was probably San Francisco, Los Angeles, and then Seattle. Like, there's no, there's no there there for a lot of people. <laughs> Um, did you want to be a comedian when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. I, I was always uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 the class clown. You know, I was always about, as George Carlin puts it on his album, Class Clown, which is a huge uh, influence on me. You know, it's all about dig me. You know, that was like my my existence. Always trying to, uh, uh, <laughs> as he puts it, why not deprive other people of their education? Because uh, it was just, I was just a kind of only child and uh, was more into just acting my whole high school and into college life and it wasn't until I moved to Chicago that I was like oh I can I can do stand up and, and, and improv too these are different avenues because you know thank God because the traditional I don't know how actors just straight up actors do it I don't know how they get a career I don't know how they get hired any 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 acting job I've ever had has just been gravy it's they just been, drink nice. I mean it's a horrible job <laughs> because there's no agency right like even if you're good mm-hmm you might it's, not be in anything. You might not be you in anything. You can't work at all. And how do you, right, how do you get discovered? How do you, you know, even if you, you know, it's even now, like when I, I go out for auditions and I'll just nail it and I, I'll later on find the cast, find out the casting person's like, yeah, we wanted to hire you, but we had five names we were offering the part to already kind of thing. So it's just, the deck is always stacked against you. I, I, don't, I don't know how actors do it. I just don't. How do you reconcile the part of you that uh, needs attention so badly that you, answered like so clearly in the affirmative that yes you always wanted to be a comedian which is not typically the case i right. mean you know like oh i always loved comedy but i never occurred to me to become a comedian is a typical yeah. response to that question yeah with the kind of built-in nightmarish rejection of show business it's it's one of those things that i've been in the real the dark areas of that and had these things almost make it and then no you know i i I did two pilots for the same show that I created with uh, with Kyle Kinane. We did this thing for a while, and that was devastating. And then I had a couple years where all these projects were just not getting off the ground and things like that. So it, I, even coming out through the other side, it's still I still love the immediacy of performance. I still love watching live music, watching live comedy, watching someone kill it, and just, just enjoying and being a part of that. And, and of course, I, I love when I'm doing great on stage, too. I, I live for it. Uh, or if I do something funny, like especially... I remember Bill Murray saying, like, when you're on a camera, it's just it's just not the same because you just don't have that reaction from people. But I even back when I first started getting my first anything on film, which would be I think I started out doing commercials, if I could just make a crew guy laugh. If I had to make one guy, I remember I had this dumb ad where I went in and I, I spent probably two years playing dumb husbands on, in commercials. You know, like, honey, where's the tide? I set the baby on fire. You know, and then there's... Uh, a washing machine explodes or something. I mean, husbands are very so, dumb. As soon as you get married thank and have children. Thank God they have just, their wives to help them. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I was, the whole deal was is my wife is on the bed and she goes, oh, I could use a massage. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to get laid. So I go around the corner and I get a, that's, that's, the, that's the basis of this ad. So I, I right. go around the corner with these massage <laughs> By oils. By this ad, you mean all ads. All ads. You're yeah. right. All ads in media. Yeah. So I come around the corner of my, my massage oil and realize she didn't mean 
that and I'm just good sad and go around the corner and there's a shot of me just setting my stuff down and the guy was just yelling because there was a, a, a music over it so it wouldn't matter what I said he's like get mad and I started punching the wall and I like broke some drywall and this one crew guy starts laughing and he's like alright now cry and I hit it and I just started just like a broken man and this other guy this big tattooed teamster guy I just see him just stick his head into the crook of his arm to not laugh and it like you know that's what you live for and you kind of Got someone a little bit, got him out of their boring zone and made him feel a little happiness, you know? It's interesting because you say that's what you live for. But, I mean, I don't think it's a universal experience to live for, uh, like, someone else <laughs> responding in laughter to you. Yes. Like, oh, it's I quite pathetic. I think there are whole people who get their satisfaction from some kind of internal system. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And and listen, I, I I found that you have to find a certain happiness inside yourself. You can't. It, it, I mean, so much of what I'm writing these days is based on how I used to be, which is kind of this grass is always greener person. And I think that's probably 95 percent of my peers. It's just the thing of it's just never good enough. You'll give someone a compliment on, oh, I really love that. Yeah, thanks, but you know, I just I really want to be doing that. And it's this thing where you're never going to be happy if you don't just take a second and appreciate what's going on in that moment, even if you don't have anything going on in your life. It just knowing this moment right now, it's never going to happen again. When did you realize that was going on for you? I, I had a, a period of little rejections. I had a relationship fall apart. And that's when you're by yourself and you kind of, and also go, going, going to therapy. I've, I started going to therapy maybe like two, three years ago. And I go to a really good guy and um, who, you know, it's work. You got to kind of work through it. But at the same time, most of what goes on in your head, you're doing it. You know, you're you're perpetuating. If you're really mad at somebody it's, and, and they're driving you nuts, you're driving you nuts. Not them. They're not working in some lab pressing a button that makes things go off in your brain, you know, no matter what they did to you, you know. I get very upset about things that I assume someone might do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, or I'm sure you're like me. You have imaginary arguments. Yes. With someone that's not there that you yeah. always win. Yeah. You know, I don't think everyone has those imaginary arguments and go, oh, good point. You jerk. You won. You know, it's always. <laughs> no, he has imaginary reconciliatory dialogue. No, no. It's never like, oh, I'm so glad you've forgiven me. Except maybe Desmond Tutu. Desmond Tutu in his head. <laughs> he forgives everyone. He's coming to a, he like imagines like somebody crosses him. Yeah. And he imagines reconciling oh with God. them. <laughs> what was his, what was his quote about when someone asked him how he could. Uh, still have a positive attitude even with all he's been through. And he was like, I'm a Christian. That means I'm a prisoner of hope. And it's like, that still sounds awful, man. Like, it's beautiful on a certain level. But it's like, why prisoner? I live in Hope House, you know? I, I'm i driving around in the Hope car. And it's I fly my car. on wings of hope. I fly on wings of hope that are attached to my back and I don't want to tear them off. Like something else. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedian Matt Bronger. His latest comedy special, Big Dumb Animal, is out now. On my way into the office today, I was listening to uh, Fresh Air, and Terry Gross was interviewing uh, Jim Gaffigan, the great stand-up comedian. Oh, yeah. And uh, Jim has 75 children. Roughly. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, he also works with his wife. His, his wife is yeah. his co-writer. Yeah. And um, Terry Gross asked him about that, and he said something to the effect of, um, you know, for a lot of comedians... Even if you just get married, like, forget starting a family. Even if you just get married, uh, there's a certain feeling of like, what? Why? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. No, that's it. 
it, it, it was, I was paralyzed in terms of what I would do next because I overanalyzed literally everything. The point was, ah, it's just better not to, don't even, don't even try. And you, 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 you stunt yourself. I think it, it, when people ask me what, what advice you give a young person, it's just like, try stuff that you might horrifically fail at. Just try it. I'm not saying cliff diving, you know, but like, <laughs> you know, stuff like. Yeah. <laughs> at least practice first. Right, or bare knuckle underground boxing. I'm saying like, you know, just, uh, you know, live with someone you date or uh, 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 quit the job you hate to do something else. I, I've, I say this a lot to friends and it's, I think we live in a really fascinating time that, you know, when Helen Keller said, um, there's no real such thing as security. Life is either a great adventure or nothing. I think we live in that era because we used to live in an era, or our parents did, where you'd work one job to your 50 and get a gold watch and you'd retire. And that will never exist again. And to me, I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing that we don't it, – it sucks that people don't have the job security they'd like. But at the same time, if that makes people do what they love because they have to, I think that's probably a good thing. That's the positive side of it, I guess. <laughs> One of the nice things about stand-up comedy is if you're good at it, you have an amount of control that um, is hard to get in almost any other art form. And you have also this sort of feedback loop that reinforces whatever kind of mental systems you've set up. Yeah, right. You know, whatever your defenses are, if you can figure out how to get the laughs mm-hmm. while keeping those up, the laughs kind of reinforce the defenses and yes. it kind of goes in a circle. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, uh, like, how hard it was for you, especially as an only child, um, to, like, get to a point where you could open yourself up in a relationship, or not just a mm-hmm. romantic relationship, but, like, be, like, let go of that kind of control. Yeah, it's funny. I just finished, I just read uh, Dino by Nick Toshis, the biography of Dean Martin that he wrote that's just really dark and messed up and basically reveals him to be, Somewhat of a friendly sociopath, like never shared a thing about himself with his any of his wives or his kids. It was just like, hey, everything's all right. Ring-a-ding. You know, he's just a happy guy, but he'd never share a thing. And I was like, God, I, I wasn't that bad, but I was like that. I would never tell my friends if I was, you know, I would never confide in them and say, I'm really feeling low these days. Or sometimes even when, when friends would, I'd be happy to listen to their problem. I just never share mine. And that's really selfish when you think about it. Not that I call my friends every day and go, listen, uh, they gave me the wrong sandwich, and it's affecting me emotionally. I said tuna fish. Yeah. Chicken salad. Yeah. Come on. It's got raisins in it. Let's listen to a little bit more from comedian Matt Bronger's new special, Big Dumb Animal. Um, so uh, you you talk a little bit about your folks who are retired school teachers. And uh, the fact that you feel like a genuinely terrible person, in part because they are such good people. Right. Um, And your mother's goodness involves spending her retirement helping ex-convicts make resumes. Yep. Because it's hard. It's hard to get a job when you have a jail record. So she helps these men and women out. And because of that, she has some amazing stories. Let me tell you one. She worked with this guy... Big tattooed monster, right? Look, he could kill you with this finger, but polite as all (laughs) Nice guy. But she finished his resume and was like, okay, the last line is just special skills. Like, whatever you're you're good at uh, to show them who you are. Doesn't have to be job applicable. Just, you know, whatever you're good at. Maybe you, you paint. Maybe you play piano. Something like that. The guy thinks about it for a second, and he says this to my mother. Well, when I was inside, you know, prison, 
The guards never gave me a moment's peace. I never knew why, but they hated me. And I never shivved none of them. Could have killed them all, but I didn't. That's his special skill. Not murdering people. In your new special, Big Dumb Animal, I think one of the things that comes up a lot is your anxiety about getting to a point in your life where you are a 40-year-old man yeah. living like a, a the life of in a sort of parallel life to people who are in their early 20s. Oh, you know, sure. People who are just, just barely entering adulthood. Right. And wondering... Like, A, can I do it? And B, should I be doing it? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a huge uh, part of who I am. And it's always just kind of this, I mean, I, I, I <laughs> sound like I'm writing my own 80s movie. I've always played by my own rules. And uh, <laughs> that almost just came out unironically out of my face just now. Um, I kind of just not necessarily did everything I wanted. I've worked very hard. But it's that it, I never had a backup plan. You know, I never had this thing like, oh, well, I'm also study finance as well as trying to do gigs. It was kind of this thing of, well, I'm just going to go until the wheels fall off. I'm I, this is, you know, uh, <laughs> to paraphrase 50 Cent, be a comedian or die trying. It was it was like and that's the kind of person I came up with and stuff. And, you know, uh, I, I don't think it's it that I've necessarily just constantly rejected responsibility and things like that. But just in terms of not living life on my own terms of uh, 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 what I've, I've rejected. And I know guys who have similar lifestyles to me and also have wives and kids and stuff. It's, it'd be one thing if I was like going and getting drunk every night. I'm certainly not. Or just I'm high all the time. Or I only eat the wrong foods. Or I'm completely unreliable. I don't answer emails. You know, I don't write thank you notes. That kind of thing. Um, you, 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 one thing I've really learned is you have to maintain connections. You have to maintain friendships. And they they, 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 they take input. They take investment, you know. And I, and I think, like, that to me is what makes, makes an adult is if you, you, you take care of your responsibilities and your, and your, your duties, you know. Um, I, I don't go so much by the idea that I'm, like, a man-child or uh, they um, – People that get married very young are, are doing the right thing, or if some or someone has to get married or has to have kids, that kind of thing. I think I would like maybe one, you know. That's like the big thing my girlfriend and I've been talking about lately. Like, hey, maybe one kid, you know. Um, but it's, I guess it's kind of I don't want to say something as pretentious as living without definition, but kind of living the life the life you chose that isn't hurting anyone else. If that makes any sense. Do you wish upon this? Uh, theoretical kid that you might have, right? Uh, the uh, emotional hmm. consequences of being an only child that you yourself. Man, I never thought about it that way. But uh, in, in terms, I don't think I'd wish consequences on any of my children, Jesse. But uh, I, I love how you put that. <laughs> you, you wish I that wish they, consequences they live, on you. They live a consequence-free yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my child is made of Nerf and uh, cannot have his or her feelings hurt. Uh, so it's just, it's pretty great. Just throw her right off a roof and come get her on the on the when I hit the ground floor. She's fine. Um, no, I mean it's I think it's I think it's just I I could guide an only child through being an only child better than most because I could be like, look, I know what you're trying to do. Shut up, you know. I know, <laughs> I, I know what you're trying to pull. You 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 think you're slick. 
But I was you, kid. I was you. I know what you're doing. I, I love, I love, I love the creative laziness of children. I love it. Like when, especially teenagers. Like I, I, I joke that their teenagers are in their, their physical prime, but they're just the laziest human beings on earth. It's this sick irony where I say that you know I, I, I think teenagers while they're in the teens should be our slaves. The white ones, be cool. The white ones, but. Just because there's always, if you ask, and I've seen like like dads asking, "Hey, you gonna mow the lawn?" You know, I I got a lot happening, and I was the thing is like there's just just excuses upon excuses. It's like, what agenda do you have besides maybe playing sports or the school play and your homework? You, you got time. You're, you're not supposed to be anywhere. I mean, I should. I'm talking out of my my own experience. I mean, these days kids probably have like nine podcasts and three webcasts, and you know, they're little producers. You were a teenage rapper, right? I was an, uh, a college rapper. Yeah, yeah. I was. I w- we would just get high and make songs, and uh, I was the one white guy. I was that guy, and uh, I was. I've just been a, like yourself. I was a hip hop fan since I was a little, a little kid. Since I first heard it, I was like, "This is wow! This is great." Um, and we opened for the Lost Boys when they played on our campus, and I think we. Other than playing shows on the quad, we never branched off of our tiny little campus and purchased New York. But it was fun. It was a fun thing to do. You ready to rip a verse on National Public Radio? <laughs> you want me to? Yeah, absolutely. You need a beat? Uh, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Wait. I gotta. I gotta put a beat on. Oh yeah. Do 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 do. So you're gonna remember this. I get bold, cold as the winter when I work Intergalactic Mac like Captain Kirk I'm flying in like space ghosts I taste most divine To combine the fun lines with dumb lines of mine Wine is fine, but liquor is quicker Marijuana gets you on another plane of awareness Yeah, it's nothing new, no need to speak about pot If you like it, then smoke it If you do not, do not I've been with girls that haven't yet met The one I'm marrying Not a killer, but a natural born Had no cesarean Harry and his crew killed the henches for stew Don't laugh, it's true, cause you too could brew in a stew this is not a test to say a test is not this. Chris Kringle couldn't rap nothing better. So get a better sweater because your style's lukewarm. But me, I get local when I warm up the party with my lyrical hot cocoa. Sudden surprise, look in your eyes, and that's what shock is. Girls too good to stay. Get the B.A. like Baracus. Call me no Sherlock, chicken, bad dog like Murdoch. Care for those who cared, prepared for whatever. Yeah, I love it when a plan comes together. My favorite part of that is you saying, okay. Let me see if I can remember it. <laughs> oh. It's like, oh, here's 48 God. bars. Yeah, but I rapped on NPR. This is amazing. Well, Matt Bronger, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Well, dude, you know that I love you, and I love everything you guys are doing here, and it was just a real honor to be on the show. I'm a huge fan, man. Matt Bronger's new comedy special is called Big Dumb Animal. You can watch it on Netflix. You can also check out his podcast, Ding Donger with Matt Bronger. After a break, our contributor Guy Branham talks to Margaret Atwood about her new novel, The Heart Goes Last. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Hey, I've got something really special to tell you about. It's a conversation with the author of the Robert Galbraith novels. But you probably know her as J.K. Rowling. Don't miss a rare conversation with J.K. Rowling on Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's fun and lively roundtable discussion of movies, books, TV shows, music, and more. J.K. Rowling is on Pop Culture Happy Hour. Listen now at npr.org slash podcasts and 
on the NPR One app. Jesse Thorne here. I'm taking Bullseye on the Road in November. It's our world tour of several American cities. Get your tickets now while you can. They're going fast. Come see me and William H. Macy and Barney Frank and Tavi Gevinson, John Hodgman, uh, the director of the Mutter Museum, who's going to do medical experiments on me, apparently, uh, Ray Suarez, Dan Deacon, so many more music, comedy, and interviews at every tour stop. Go to bullseyetour.com to get your tickets. You will not want to miss this. If you're in Philadelphia, Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., or our own great city of Los Angeles, California, bullseyetour.com to get tickets. It's Bullseye. I'm Guy Branham. Margaret Atwood is one of the greatest living writers today. In the 60s, she released volumes of poetry, which earned her regard and a Governor General's Award in Canada. In 1970, she published her first novel, The Edible Woman, serving up bold doses of both third-wave feminism and cake. Since then, she's written 15 novels, including Cat's Eye, The Handmaid's Tale, which made her an international celebrity, and The Blind Assassin, which won her the 2001 Booker Prize. She also writes poetry, short stories, literary criticism, retellings of myth, and even invented a device to sign documents from a distance. Her 15th book, The Heart Goes Last, is out now. She joins me from Nashville today. Margaret Atwood, welcome to Bullseye. Well, thank you. Um, the Heart Goes Last is a book that's so much about sex. Do you think that you surprise people by writing a book that, that is this much about sex? You mean at my age, dear? Yes, and also being a woman. Women Don't are... say yes like that. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you have to remember the thing about older people. We've been there, done that. <laughs> Whereas younger people have not actually been old yet. So any book written by a younger person about an old person, they're making it up. <laughs> Answer the question, Margaret. Do, do What's you... the question? Were people surprised that I would write so much about sex? Yeah. I don't know because I, I don't have a questionnaire that goes out to everybody and says, were you surprised when Margaret Atwood wrote so much about sex? Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> Understandable. Uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to be with my characters in their predicaments. And if sex is what they are going to have, then, of course, I have to write about their sex. But it's not graphic. Um, the book starts out really talking about uh, economics and, and the breakdown of our economic system. And, well, and... it starts out with Stan and Charmaine who are living in their car because all novels are, are about people, uh-huh. even even when they're about rabbits. Right. And uh, they're all about people in situations. And they're usually about people in fairly difficult situations. Otherwise, what would be the plot? But it's so interesting that Stan and Charmaine going from their car to a, a idyllic community uh, where they, they live in sort of like uh, 1950s suburban happiness for one month uh, and then in the next month are, are forced to go into a prison. Not forced. They chose it. Uh, right, right. It's a nice prison. There aren't any actual criminals in it anymore. Of course, the question is what happened to them, but never. we won't go there yet. Not yet. But my question is, why does that set up so much turn into a story about sex and marriage? Well, you start out with a young married couple. And then you separate them for a month at a time because he goes into the men, she goes into the women's. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also put in a prohibition because they're, they're sharing their house with an alternate couple who are in the prison when they are out of it. 
So it's a double timeshare. You timeshare the space of your house with the other couple, and the other couple timeshares your space in the prison when you're in the house. It's a full employment uh, scheme. It's also a prison-for-profit scheme, and the next question they have to uh, figure out is, how is the profit being made? But you wonder about the sex. You wonder how come they end up having sex. How old are they, Guy? They're in their early 30s, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> do I need to say anything else about that? Right. Or do I need to point out that one of the epigraphs at the front of the book is from Midsummer Night's Dream, in which two young couples run off to the forest, and then they get enchanted in it, and when they wake up, their sexual affiliations have been all switched around. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Guy Branham talking to Margaret Atwood. Her latest book is called The Heart Goes Last. It's out now. What is your favorite Shakespeare comedy? My favorite Shakespeare play. Oh, I didn't uh, say play. I said comedy, Margaret Atwood. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I don't know which ones are actually comedies. I, I think his comedies are all kind of dark myself. But, uh-huh. As are yours. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I can tell you that I'm working right now on the uh, Hogarth Shakespeare project in which a number of different writers have been asked to choose a play and revisit in the in the form of a prose novel. And I'm doing The Tempest. I don't know whether you would call it a comedy exactly. Um, it, it, I mean, it's been called uh, a romance or a problem comedy. In a way. Yes. Yeah, there's some funny parts in it, and it, and it comes out okay. But, but it's not the standard idea of a, of a comedy. But it's also a comedy that's about a, a person with a lot of power pulling strings. There are, yeah. there are the comedies that are, are more plucky girls dressed up as boys. Um, yeah, plucky girls dressed up as boys, exactly. Uh, using wit and intellect. But A Midsummer's Night's Dream, you know, Helena, Hermia, Lysander, and Demetrius, I think they aren't smart. Like, they're, they're pretty much they're just... Not- Doing well, what they've, other they've better been people... Addled. They've been addled. Right. Have they not? Yeah. They've had flower juice dropped into their eyes. So why write a novel about <laughs> flower juice? Why what? <laughs> so there's no flower juice in my novel. Well, there are kinds of flower juice in your novel. Yeah, there's substitute flower juice. But it, it's, it's no good to ask writers why they write things, unless it's a straight platform type of work. So Uncle Tom's Cabin was written to get rid of slavery. Right. And nothing so didactic for Margaret well, Atwood. A, a novel is, is not a message in a, in a little encapsulated thing. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's, we were taught in school, uh, particularly poems, what was the poet trying to say? Uh-huh. As if there was this crackerjack message in the box of crackerjack that you could pull out of it and say, this is the meaning. And then, of course, kids say, well, why did he put all those other words in? Uh-huh. That's what he was trying to say. Why didn't he just say war is hell or <laughs> love is great or uh, one of those kinds of things? So I, I think a novel is an experience. You go into it. Um, it's like Virgil taking Dante on a tour of hell. Uh, and you experience all of the things in that space. And you come out and you draw your own conclusions. And, and any novel that 
tries to preach to the writer what exactly conclusions you should be drawing, we resent that. You're very on top of your game, Margaret Atwood. You've clearly my game. You think I have a game? <laughs> I think you have wonderful interview skills from from many many years of doing this. Yeah, well, you should have seen me at first. It was horrible. I've watched some videos from the early '80s, which isn't the first first, but no. <laughs> So uh, did you? I, I suppose you went online on the CBC and saw that awful interview with Hannah Gartner, which they never actually played at the time. Oh, really? There was this dude who kept trying to like. Um, he was being weirdly flirty about the fact that you were like had opinions of your own, and it was like very condescending and creepy. I wonder which that one was. The the really bad one that they didn't play at the time was a woman. Oh, really? Yes. I've also seen there was um, a really interesting documentary that was made about you in, I think, the late 70s, like on the island where you live. Oh, this Michael Rubo, the mad Australian. Yes. Do you ever consider going back to a career as a reality show star? <laughs> well, that was very funny because he kept trying to discover some awful secret of my childhood, but there actually wasn't one. And uh, uh, he was driven to distraction. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to our contributor, Guy Branham, talking to Margaret Atwood. Her latest book is called The Heart Goes Last. It's out now. Uh, You wrote this novel uh, somewhat non-traditionally or in a very retro fashion. It was it was serialized. Um, well, it wasn't written first and then serialized. Right. I did I did it the Charles Dickens way. Uh huh. That is, I wrote it episode by episode, and uh, that was quite a workout. I have to tell you. <laughs> uh, why is that? Because I didn't know ahead of time where it was going. Uh huh. But I never do when I'm when I'm writing a novel. It's just that usually I write them, and then I then I can go back and edit them. As a whole, whereas with this one, I was editing the the parts. The last half of the heart goes on is such uh, a romp. Like it's it's so much adventure. Um, it, was it like a, a parody of action films? Was it an homage to pulp? Um, I think it was more like, how do I get out of this? <laughs> yeah, if you want to see that process in action, you can go on to. Uh, the Wattpad site, W-A-T-T-P-A-D, uh-huh. and see the uh, episodic work that I wrote with Naomi Alderman, who is a, uh, the inventor of the Zombies Run game. So we did a two-hander zombie story, uh-huh. in which I played the grandmother, she played the grandchild, and it kicks off with the granddaughter phoning the grandmother and saying, Grandma, help! My mom just ate Dad in the kitchen! And the grandmother says, I never liked that woman. <laughs> so, so it goes on from there. But Naomi would write me into a space in her chapter that I would then have to write myself out of and vice versa. And we didn't plan it ahead of time. We just went uh, chapter by chapter. Do you feel like taking different approaches to your writing process like that keep things fresh? It's clearly exciting to you. I think it keeps me awake. Uh-huh. Tippy toes. You have to be on your tippy toes. We'll hear the rest of Guy Branham's conversation with Margaret Atwood after a break. They'll talk about what it was like growing up without electricity in the backwoods of northern Quebec. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Hey, I've got something really special to tell you about. It's a conversation with the author of the Robert Galbraith novels. But you probably know her as J.K. Rowling. Don't miss a rare conversation with J.K. Rowling on Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's fun and lively roundtable discussion of movies, books, TV shows, music, and more. J.K. Rowling is on Pop Culture Happy Hour. Listen now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm Jordan Morris. The federal government has millions of dollars in programs and opportunities that you need to seize today. You're a taxpayer, right? Well, then you've got it coming. Thanks to Uncle Sam, you can get a pamphlet on grant programs for sinuous youngsters. Arts and crafts from a simpler time. Gingham, it's history and applications. Pleasure your wife. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. Swim dancing? Super revenge. Arnie Duncan teaches you to slam dunk. For all of this and more, drop us a line. Jordan Jesse Go, 123 iTunes Street, or wherever you download podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Guy Branham's interview with novelist Margaret Atwood. Her new book, The Heart Goes Last, is out now. Can I ask you a couple of questions about your earlier life? My earlier life? You mean... My life before this one, dear, or do you mean when I was younger? I mean the woods. (laughs) The woods, life in the woods. Well, um, I just met somebody today who grew up in the woods, only it was in Colorado. In in Cat's Eye, your your heroine in in Cat's Eye grows up in the the northern woods of of Canada. Basically like me, right. Right, and sort of decontextualized from like conventional female socialization, conventional human socialization. Yes, I was not properly socialized, it's true. So what was that like when you hit grade school and suddenly little girls were playing power games around you? Oh, that was completely confusing because I, I had an older brother. And as you probably know, little boys' power games are different. Uh Uh-huh. They basically hit each other, uh, or they have a stable hierarchy with you know somebody at the top for some reason uh-huh. that you can discern. Whereas little girls are much more like the Byzantine court, <laughs> so a lot of secrecy, a lot of plots, a lot of whispering. Now, of course, they do it on their phones. I've long insisted they... you guys should blind each other more. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just not going to go there. Uh, so yes, that that was confusing because the rules for little girls of that age are are seem to be quite a lot different from those of little boys. And uh, I've seen this; it hasn't changed much in that respect. Do you think that this was an origin for for sort of like trying to parse human motivation? Oh. No doubt. But, you know, you ask any writer about their childhood, their, their childhoods are all different. So there isn't there isn't sort of one common thing that makes somebody a writer or makes them the writer that they are. And, and retrospect is always, is always easy because you can say, oh, this happened because of that. But at the time, of course, nobody has any idea what the result is going to be. I was an, an early reader and, and writer simply because up in the woods with no electricity. When it rains, you're going to be inside reading, writing, or or drawing. You have two standard origin stories for how you became a writer. Which one do you feel like telling today? I can't remember what they are. What are they? <laughs> uh, I thought it was that your aunts always insisted that when you were like four or five, 
you told them that you wanted to be a writer. Yeah, one of them said that. Yeah, it's true. But then you preferred the story of when you were 16 and you gave the poem to your English teacher. That One of the poems that I gave to my English teacher, yeah. The origin story, one of the origin stories is I was walking across the football field and I started writing a poem. And that was that. So that's a pretty good one. It's short. (laughs) (laughs) It gets to the point. Um, Uh, The part I love about it is that in the third year of high school, I had a teacher called Miss Florence Smedley. uh And when they went back to do a documentary on me some years ago, they asked Miss Florence Smedley, what I was like in her class. She was an English teacher. And usually somebody in that position would say, oh, I can tell immediately that brilliance shone from every pore. But she told the truth. She said she showed no particular ability in my class. <laughs> and I always loved her for that because I did show no particular ability in her class. Well, I mean, that is one of the fascinating things about your work is that you you do so much document the the different worlds that exist inside and outside of people that really um people putting up a bland exterior but having a complex inner life is like it's an important part of what you do and i feel like in the heart goes on more so than than any book like charmaine is is this constant tension between the stuff that's going on inside of her and the stuff that she's saying just to negotiate the world around her you know, I think most people are like that, except that they're usually not living under quite such tense circumstances. Yeah. But, of course, we have a, a social facade. We we really wouldn't be able to exist without it. But do you think that that's something that plays a bigger role in Canadian identity? There's that great Robertson Davies quote about... Canada having something like northern and wild about it, but always trying to seem like a Scotch banker. Yes, yes. He said. He also said, I know the dark folkways of my people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was great. Um, I think, you know, an odd thing about Canada is that, and I have taught in the States from time to time, and when I was teaching in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I exposed them to some Canadian literature... They got it immediately. Uh-huh. There's there's something uh, akin, I think, to uh, Canadian literature, particularly of that period, and uh, the Southern literary experience. But when you read quite a few Southern novels, you, you find a lot of particularly female characters having a social facade mm-hmm. and also being haunted. So I, I opened my class at that year, which was 19... 19- 85. I was actually finishing The Handmaid's Tale there. I opened my class by getting them to tell me ghost stories. <laughs> and they all had some. How do ghost stories um, dovetail with, uh, with social facade? Oh, boy. This is too deep for me. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe, maybe they don't. Maybe they're just parallel. But um, I think the, the point is that in a smaller place, and a, especially a smaller place with dark histories, uh-huh. I'm thinking of Alice Munro's literary uh, community. Yeah. People know one another, and they know the stories. And they also know, I mean, it's, it's very status-riven, those, those small towns. Um. So they they know quite a lot about each other, and they also know who shot their head off in the barn and things like that. 
So I, I think it's part of having a an ancestral memory, those those kinds of ghost stories. And the social facade is just so you can negotiate every day in that town where everybody knows who you are. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to our contributor, Guy Branham, talking to Margaret Atwood. Her latest book is called The Heart Goes Last. It's out now. I'm fascinated by the piece that you wrote for placement in a time capsule not to be read for 100 years. Well, this is the Future Library Norway project. So I will explain what it is. You can find it online at futurelibrary.no, which means Norway, rather than no. Uh And uh, it is the brainchild of Katie Patterson, who is a conceptual artist of a mere 34 years old from Scotland, who uh, was very interested in time. And her project is a slow time project in which... uh, Forest has been planted in Norway that will grow for a hundred years. And in each year of that hundred years, a different writer from around the world, any language, um, will be asked to place a manuscript inside a sealed box, any form. So as long as it's made of words, no images, you can't just bung your photo album in there. So a poem, a single word a story, a novel, a nonfiction piece, a letter, a play, anything. And the other rule is you can't tell anybody what's in the box. And when the hundred years has passed, all of the boxes will be opened and enough trees will be cut from the forest to make the wood, to print an anthology, to make the paper, to print an anthology uh, of the hundred manuscripts. And this grabbed people's attention all around the world, I think, because it's got so much hope built into it. So hope that people will still exist, hope that they'll still know how to read, (laughs) hope that the forest will grow, that the library will still be there, all of those things. Is it strange to think of a work as being done when you'll experience no reaction to it in your lifetime. Yeah, but of course, when I first started writing, I wasn't publishing. So, although I thought I might eventually Mm -hmm. publish, it was still the same sort of thing. You anticipate a reader. Think of Emily Dickinson writing all those things which were not published in her lifetime. She knew that she was addressing them to a reader, that somebody out there she was talking to, but she didn't know who that person was going to be. But as you said earlier, meaning is given to a work by the reader. Like yes. The, yeah. Yeah, but you can't anticipate that uh-huh. you, because you don't know who the reader is going to be. Uh-huh. I don't think Emily Dickinson ever anticipated that she would be taught in college courses, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, in The Harko's Last... Uh, there's a, a line where one character um, mentions Paradise Lost and uh, Stan asks if that book had been turned into an HBO series because then, right. then he might have heard of it. Um, <laughs> was this you being a little bit shady, Margaret Atwood? I'm always shady. <laughs> shady is my middle name. Come on. Understandable. But you also are – you're working with uh, HBO – 
Oh, I wasn't being shady in that way, no. I know, but I'm I'm just playing as I am with yes. everything. And yes. I love how shady you are. Why do you think I'm talking to you, Margaret Atwood? Because um, I'm shady. All right. Because you're very, very shady and a witch. Um, the best, but the good kind. The good kind. Sometimes. But I also wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about the process of you guys are turning the Mad Adam trilogy um, into a, a series for HBO. Yes. Yes. Isn't that fascinating? It is. Like, um, there haven't been too many adaptations of your work. There was the, the feature film of... The Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. uh, and I believe uh, a couple of Canadian uh, TV movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there a reason that you have been reticent to have your work adapted? I haven't been reticent. People have been reticent to adapt it, but, <laughs> but they're not at the moment. Uh huh. Is it worrisome handing these works over to another artist to reinterpret them? Well, you have a couple of choices. Number one, you can just say no. Uh, number two, you can uh, get some kind of a handle on on who it is that wants to do it and whether you think that they are going to do a good job. So those are the those are the choices. You you don't have the choice to suddenly veto the project after it's you know a couple of uh, tens of millions of dollars along. So you you never get that option. You you can take your name off it usually, but that's about as far as you can go in the way of disapproval. Um, final question, Margaret Atwood. If people in the United States deigned for a moment to pay attention to the nation of 35 million people just right next to us, what three works other than your own would you say are a good starting point for understanding the people we share this continent with? Okay, first of all, um, Alice Munro, who just won the Nobel Prize. Uh-huh. Uh, you could start with uh, Lives of Girls and Women, for which I've just written a, an essay. There's going to be a collection of essays on her work, and I did that one. Um, second, the work of Joseph Boyden, B-O-Y-D-E-N, a First Nations author. I would recommend, first of all, Three Day Road, which is... Uh, about the true life fact that a number of, of First Nations people went to World War I as snipers because they were such good shots and being hunters as they were. And maybe third, I don't know, there's a lot to choose from. Um, what area would you like the third one to be? So you can have a uh, an eastern seaboard one, you can have a prairies one, you can have a west coast one. Uh, tin Flute? Um, the Tin Flute is very good. That would be Gabriel Roy, who was writing about Montreal in the um, Depression into wartime. And as it turns out, I'm also writing an essay about her work. Oh, very cool. You didn't know that. Oh, yes. There's, there's going to be an anthology of essays about the Francophone influence on North America. And Gabriel Roy is the person that I'm writing about. Margaret Atwood, it was so lovely to get to talk to you. Uh, I was terrified of this, and you have been uh, uh, a delight and a terror at the same time, as you should be. Well, yes, it comes with my mean old lady status. (laughs) Oh, Margaret, you were mean when you were quite young. I've read The Edible Woman. I know, but I didn't get away with it as much. (laughs) Margaret Atwood, thank you so much. 
And thank you. That was Guy Branham's interview with Margaret Atwood. Atwood's latest novel, The Heart Goes Last, is out now. Branham released a hilarious comedy album called Effable a little earlier this year, and you can also find him as the regular host of our sister podcast, Pop Rocket, which is a roundtable discussion of popular culture and is so funny and insightful and great. You can find Pop Rocket wherever you download podcasts or at MaximumFun.org. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host, It's the outshot. What does the apocalypse sound like? Well, in Jamaica in 1977, it sounded oddly hopeful. The band Culture recorded this song. It's called Two Sevens Clash in 1977. They put it out in the lead-up to a very auspicious date, July 7th, 1977. 7-7-77. For some, seven is a lucky number, but it wasn't as far as Joseph Hill was concerned. He's the front man of culture. The way he saw it, 7777, the day the sevens clashed, was the end of days. Babylon would fall, according to the predictions of Marcus Garvey. It's only a housing scheme that divides What a living on the When the two sevens clash Betrayed What a living on the When the two sevens clash At the time, Jamaica was in disarray. It was 15 years since independence. Hope was fading into distrust and despair. The government was in crisis. That year, the IMF would swoop in, offering loans to help keep the country solvent. But they came with onerous austerity measures built on the backs of the poor. It it honestly wasn't even clear that the political system of Jamaica would survive. Joseph Hill was a devout man, and he saw in this roiling nightmare something hopeful, the opportunity for renewal. It's endemic to Rastafarianism, a vision that destruction can be curative, that it can cleanse, clear a path. And so Two Sevens Clash is a joyful song and a joyful album, even in the face of these apocalyptic predictions, and even in the face of a Jamaica consumed by turmoil. It's even proud. They say that people in Kingston stayed home on the day the Sevens clashed. But with every track, culture tells us that redemption is at hand. They take us away from our homeland. They take us away from our homeland. And we're slaving down here in
July 8, 1977 came. Marcus Garvey's Black Star Line never came to pick up the people of Jamaica. But humanity not having been wiped off the face of the earth, that message of pride and hope still resonates. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Shows produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Avadian X. Perello. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Our interstitial music given to us by Dan Wally. Our thanks to Dan. Also thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries. The Go Team made our theme music. Thanks this week to Dave Walton at Spotland in Nashville for engineering help. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you liked hearing Guy Branham on this week's episode or a couple weeks ago when he filled in for me, he hosts our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. It's funny. It's insightful. It's really great. I really can't tell you how much I love. I listen to the show every week and look forward to it every week. Find Pop Rocket wherever you download podcasts or at MaximumFun.org. And I'm taking Bullseye on the Road in November. Come see me and William H. Macy and Barney Frank and Tavi Gevinson, John Hodgman, Ray Suarez, Dan Deacon, so many more music, comedy, and interviews at every tour stop. Go to BullseyeTour.com to get your tickets. You will not want to miss this if you're in Philadelphia, Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., or our own great city of Los Angeles, California, bullseyetour.com to get tickets. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.